the Behind the Seams podcast. I'm your host, Nunzio Signore, looking to bring you great dialogue with some of the best in the world of player development. The world of training baseball players has changed dramatically during the past few years, and I'm looking forward to shedding some light here on what's the latest, what's the best, and what's really happening in the world of player development. Thanks for joining me for the ride. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Before we begin, I want to tell you about our new remote training programs here at RPP. We've been offering remote training for quite some time, but we always required athletes to come in-house for assessments. Now, we can do the whole assessment online, and we're really excited about bringing all of our services, pitching, hitting, and strength training, to your doorstep. So if you like what we do and how we do it, check it out on our website at rocklandpeakperformance.com under remote training in the toolbar. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Nunzio Signore and welcome to the Behind the Seams podcast. Today, I've been getting a lot of calls from guys that had attended the Wake Forest seminar on my profiling pictures talk that I did. And I wanted to briefly maybe spend about 25 to 30 minutes today going through some of that talk and how I look at pitchers when they come in on day one and some of the more important things that I've found from this profile that I uh, began and developed after looking at Graham Lehman's uh, profile that he did for on-field athletes. I took this profile and I actually made it more uh, transferable to in-house in our gym using a bit more equipment. And um, I always have to give kudos to Graham because he's such a smart guy. So first of all, what is a pitcher's profile? Well, there's many attributes a pitcher can possess and use to produce elite velocity. Some guys use mobility and more elasticity. Some guys have long lever arms like a Randy Johnson or a Chris Sale and also mobility, but they use those lever arms for good leverage. There's guys like Marcus Stroman who have great amounts of strength. And then there's like guys like all of the above, like Aroldis Chapman, who's just like Superman. He's got the length. He's got the leverage. He's got the mobility. He's got the elasticity and he's got the strength. But by understanding the various physical factors as well as the quantity needed to produce these elite athletes, we can, you know, we can organize and give guys their each their own individualized blueprint to help build them out for success, to help build them better out and make them more successful on the mound. And this is important on many levels. Number one, it gives the athlete autonomy. The profile is a 10 bar graph and is really easy to see visually and easy to conceptualize. It helps create a common language between the coach and the player to better set goals. It basically, you can look at this 10 bar graph. It, it, would, it would break down different attributes that we're going to go through and it would show you where the lowest hanging fruit is. We're looking for the 80th percentile or better and anything that falls below that 80th percent, we know that we're working on. It creates a common language. Great pitching coaches, strength coaches, ATs, PTs, these guys should all understand these universal principles for better communication within the organization. And that was actually the reason that I did this because um, it was all about player development. And I think a lot of times when I go visit pro teams, they've got a lot of great guys that work for them. There's great strength coaches there's great ATs, there's great PTs, great pitching coaches, hitting coaches, but I think that a lot gets lost in the conversation and in the translation of what needs to be done. So I think that strength coaches should learn a little bit more about what it takes to create a high-level thrower on the mound. Pitching coaches should need what it takes to uh, create a higher thrower in the weight room. PTs need to know all of the above. It's important. 
The way we devised it, or the way Graham devised it actually, was work versus velocity. He took an article about track and field throwers by Max Jones. Um, I think it's called Talent Selection in Throwing Events. And what they did was um, Max Jones took force times time to equal work. And Graham, to better apply this to pitching, he replaced force and time with athletic abilities and physical traits. So force, he used strength and power. So we're testing strength and power in our athletes and time, the amount of time they can create force for. And that has to do everything with how long their limbs are and how mobile they are. So this force times time is actually strength and power times limb length and mobility. And that equals work, which is velocity. So this gives us the four basic adaptations for velocity, upper and lower body strength, upper and lower body power, upper and lower body mobility and elasticity, and anthropometrics, which is limb length. And it really looks at the lowest hanging fruit, which is really important because you could have two completely different type athletes. You can have a guy who is thin and tall, and you can have a guy who's more stocky and built with a little more muscle on his body and can't is a little tighter, but they can both throw 96 miles an hour. It's how they use it, what they use, and then the key thing is, is to give that athlete a little bit more of what they need without taking away what they use to make them throw 96. So you'll get a guy maybe like Chris Sale who's got these long limbs and is very elastic and mobile. He can throw hard because he can produce the amount of force that he has for longer periods of time. Not that we want him to actually throw harder, but by getting him stronger, we can take these long lever arms. He's so far from the ground with his center of gravity that we could take those long lever arms and we can maybe make him a little bit more durable to last through a season, let his arm last, lower back pain, a lot of things that a lot of tall, thin guys who throw hard go through. Whereas we take a guy like Marcus Stroman who throws hard, and is strong and stocky, if we can actually get him a little bit more mobile, we could probably create training adaptations that could help him throw more safely and harder as well. It's a little weird using elite athletes in this case, but with high school and college kids, these kids all need to get to the next level. Okay, with a more elite athlete, they're kind of already there. We're not going to mess with these guys too much because A, they're making a lot of money doing what they're doing and they're doing it at a very high level. So for the sake of this uh, conversation in this podcast today, we're going to be focusing on guys that are trying to get to that level, which is mostly high school, division one college guys, guys in indie ball that are trying to really take it to the next level. So we break it down by looking at seven, eight different characteristics. We look at anthropometrics and limb length. We look at mobility. We look at upper and lower body strength. We look at upper and lower body power. We look at upper and lower body elasticity. And then we look at how well they decelerate the front leg. And we look at body composition, the uh, percentage of their body weight to their height. Let's look at these briefly, uh, one at a time. So first is anthropometrics. 93% of Major League Baseball pitchers are taller than 6 feet, yet only 14% are taller than 6'4". This puts our guys in a very, very small window. The cons with anthropometrics and limb length, this is the least trainable trait. But the pros to that is it becomes the most important metric to base everything else around. This is basically the frame of the car that we're 
dealing with. We might need a bigger engine. We might need the, the, the steering to be better as far as mobility or elasticity. But we're dealing with the frame of the car that we have. There's not much we can do about it. So we need to build everything else around their anthropometrics. For example, guys with longer torsos and shorter legs, they might need to be able to sit back into that back leg a little better when coming down the mound um, with a little bit more of a vertical shin. Whereas our guys with longer legs, if you ever look at a basketball player trying to squat, it's not a pretty thing. So these guys, we're not going to expect them to A, either be as strong in the weight room, and we're also going to change maybe how they get into that hinge. They might have to lean over a little bit, their upper body a little bit more than staying upright to get into that hinge due to those long lever arms of their legs being so far and their body being so far away from the ground. So looking at that back leg load and forward trunk tilt, you know, we look at how much of the athlete's height is his legs compared to his torso. Do we need more forward trunk tilt? Maybe, not always. And these things that we look at with anthropometrics, these are suggestions. Anything in this profile is a suggestion of something to try. Once again, there are no absolutes, so nothing is in stone. The second thing we'll look at is mobility, an athlete's mobility. And we'll look at their shoulder mobility. We'll look at hip mobility. We'll look at T-spine mobility. There's no doubt that possessing great mobility can not only increase your chances of generating power to throw hard, but you can actually do that safely. If you have too much mobility, if you're a lax mover instead of a middle of the road or a tight mover, this can create stability problems. So we need to know not only from a mobility standpoint, are our guys mobile enough to get into these positions, or sometimes... Do they have congenital laxity? Do they have too much mobility where maybe they can't stabilize as well? These are things that we all take into consideration when we look at the mobility side of the profile. So if a guy is tight, his mobility is going to score low. If he's way over his passive ranges of motion, he will also score low. We have a range where we want him to be in, and we, if we go above or below that range, that's just a red flag. Once again, no absolutes, but something that we're going to address in the front part of his program. Some possible mechanical considerations is, do they have antiverted hips, good internal, poor external rotation? In the weight room, they probably won't feel good with bilateral squatting, especially in a wide stance. And on the rubber, many times these guys seem to do best neutral or internally rotated 15 to 20 degrees on the rubber with, with like more of a knee-to-knee drive, you know, like Diaz. Or if they're actually retroverted and they have good external and poor internal. Uh, in the weight room, we may need to use more of a, a wide or open stance when bilateral swatting. On the rubber, many times they seem to do best neutral or externally rotated 10 to 15 degrees while loading and holding a vertical shin. One more time, these are just suggestions. These are things we will try. We find that we look at the gun, we ask the athlete how it feels, we look at how accurate he is. If these are all good and positive results, we might want to try that. You can tell when once an athlete gets used to it, it doesn't take a long time. If it's something that may work better for him due to how he's built, chances are he's going to be able to make that happen very quickly. If we're mulling over this for three to four sessions, we might want to go back to the drawing board and kind of and kind of bail on this idea. But we find like 70% of the time, along with looking at ISA, their infrasternal angle, and their pelvis position and ankle dorsiflexion, we can make some good suggestions as to where we want that back foot to be internally, externally, or neutral based off of their hip mobility. The next thing we check is max strength. All athletes need max strength. I'm a stickler for this. 
To fill the fourth side of the power equation, we need max strength. It helps avoid injury by being able to disperse higher amounts of stress to the body when coming down the mound. I was talking about these tall, lean guys who maybe throw hard, but they can't disperse that stress. These are accidents waiting to happen. So this type of strength is the foundation that all other types of strength are built upon. We can look at the like as max strength as a as a pint glass and inside that glass is force which is like accelerative strength like 60 to 75 percent of their one rep max then we have power strength speed and speed strength and we have absolute speed sprint work all of these types of strength fit inside the pint glass of max strength if you've got a shot glass of max strength you can't put a lot of force power and speed inside a shot glass we need to turn that glass into a pint glass and then with that by doing that we need to get more max strength and by doing that we can exponentially increase the amount of force and power and eventually explosive speed that an athlete can create. Let me one more time talk about how strong do you need to be? We need to look at other parts of the profile. Anthropometrics. Athletes with long lever limbs do not possess the ability in the weight room to put up impressive numbers, and nor do they need to due to their ability to create force for a longer period of time. We do want to get them stronger to help absorb that stress and prevent injury, but they will not need that to throw harder. And we use a trap bar deadlift. We look for two and a half times body weight to consider an athlete strong enough. On the bench press, we look for 1.25 times body weight to consider an athlete strong enough. And we look at a single leg squat. If an athlete can single leg squat 55% of their body weight, we determine them strong enough. And we know at this point, this guy, we consider him strong enough to throw a five ounce baseball. And we're going to work primarily on power. And we're only going to give him doses of max strength to maintain the strength that he already has. This is with a lot of our pro guys and our high-level college guys who have high training ages in lifting. These guys will come in in October, November, and they're already really strong. We're not going to sit here and try and increase their trap bar deadlift because actually we may just get what's known as diminishing returns. I've seen a lot of guys, they get stronger, they get stronger, they get stronger, and exit velos and throwing velocities go down. Their area of cross-sectional fiber is getting thicker and it's creating stiffer movement patterns. These guys need to work on more of the velocity side of power. With these guys, we're going to lift faster and we're going to work more plyometric training. Next on to power. On the power side, we check lower body power. We test that with a CMJ and a squat jump. And power basically is the product of force times velocity and is the closest adaptation we train to mimic the pitching delivery. We use a CMJ and a squat jump to test these. And how we do that is we'll have the athlete get into a, a hip width stance. We'll have him perform a, a CMJ jump where he's coming down and up really quick, almost like he's going up for a uh, rebound in, in basketball, except we keep his hands on his hips to keep the movement primarily lower body. And then we'll have him do the same jump except to hold it in the bottom position for three seconds. This is a squat jump. And what happens with this is that by going down for three seconds, most of the energy that is in the muscles from the eccentric movement gets dissipated out of the hips as, um, as heat. At this point, this becomes more of a muscular jump. So this tells us how well the athlete also uses the stretch shortening cycle, which we'll get to when we talk about elasticity. But for these guys... We're looking to just get a peak power output of the lower half with their CMJ and with their squat. 
And what we'll do is we'll train that with weighted jumps. This, these are with like maybe 20 to 30% of their one rep max, like trap bar jumps. They're a great tool to help build out some of the key parts of this physical profile. For example, a guy has a one rep max of a deadlift of 500 pounds. We may give him a 100 to 200 pound trap bar jump being 20 to 30% of his one rep max. Uh, Every athlete has different strength levels, so we use VBT in this example. This tells us at what percentage each athlete produces peak power. So if we have this athlete, both athletes, their one rep max is 500 pounds. With VBT, one guy might hit it at 100 pounds, one guy might hit it at 150 pounds. It will not only tell us how much power it is, but we can keep moving up until peak power goes down. Once it goes down, we know where they finished at. This is the load that they will train at for peak power. We look at peak power when we're working with ballistic jumps, and we look at mean power when we're working on regular weightlifting because with regular weightlifting like a bench press or a regular deadlift, you have to decelerate your body so you don't leave the ground. And that deceleration affects your speed. So the mean velocity will take the entire lift. Whereas when we check peak power, it only takes the quickest 10 milliseconds of the movement. I know it's a little long-winded, but when you're training jumping, basically, or throws, we're using peak power. When we are using checking velocity in the weight room, we're using mean velocity. And then we'll take these two jumps, the CMJ and the squat jump, and we'll use them to judge a guy's elasticity. So the CMJ jump ordinarily should be 10 to 15% higher than your squat jump due to the use of the stretch shortening cycle, due to the use of that eccentric energy that you're producing on the way down. Uh, If we see an athlete whose CMJ jump is not 10 to 15% higher, then we know that he's using more muscular force and does not use his stretch shortening cycle that well. If we see a CMJ jump that is higher than 15%, we know that he relies mostly on velocity and this athlete needs to get stronger and create more force. And that's okay. Like I said, you can get elastic guys to throw 96 and you can get strong guys to throw 96. This just tells us use of the stretch shortening cycle and it can help us know, do we need to train this guy more on the velocity side of power with higher velocities with VBT in the weight room? Or do we need to train him with more plyometrics also? Or if he is a elastic guy, do we need to train him more with band-resisted stuff and things that are going to keep resistance on him and um, keep him producing force for a longer period of time? And the early off-season is the optimal time to train those athletes that are springier with classic strength training like I talked about. And with those less springy athletes, those more gorilla-based guys as I call them, the high cross-sectional area guys, these athletes benefit more from a lot of plyometrics in their program to actually get them starting to move faster. Some possible back leg mechanical considerations regarding the mechanics specifically on that back leg. These more velocity driven guys, these more twitchy athletes, they maybe do better with drifting due to the fact that they may not be able to adequately hinge and get into low positions and get out of those low positions. So while we're getting them strong, these are kind of like a DeGrom guy or a Bueller, you know, a drift, a quick and a late load. These stronger, stiffer guys, they may produce more power if given more time with more of a drop and drive like Chapman or um, like I see Zach Granke or some of these guys with a longer, deeper load. 
getting towards the end of the profile, we're going to check deceleration and their plyometric ability on that front leg. With our position players, we check it going side to side on both legs for change of direction speed and see if there's a deficit on one side or the other. Deceleration, this is eccentric strength or the ability for the athlete to hit the brakes. This is key for loading that front leg and decelerating that front leg to actually create the block that sends the force back up through the leg into the torso and up and into the arm. Athlete movements like a lead leg block happen in less than 250 milliseconds. If it takes too long to load the lead leg, this small window of opportunity will be missed uh, to produce a faster or force at a faster rate. When we look at guys in our mocaps, we're really not as concerned with how much we, they post up in the video. A lot of people think you need to have a really straight leg. I'm more concerned with how quickly that post up happens, how quickly that that extension happens in the front leg, because that's telling me how well they decelerated and how every millisecond that it takes to, for them to extend that leg, that is velo lost and, and force lost transferring up into the arm and we test this with a single leg depth drop what happens is we get a riser that's about four inches high we use four inches because it simulates the distance between the edge of the rubber and where most guys around six foot to six three six four land with their front foot there's about a four inch decline on this uh, distance so we will use a four inch riser we will have the athlete get into his pitching position, and we will have a jump mat or a force plate underneath um, right in front of him. He will turn like he's pitching, and then he will physically land on the mat and immediately post up straight up into the air, putting producing force back in a rear direction like as if he was posting up and get up into the air. And what will happen is we'll get a single leg, front leg as we call it, RSI. And that will give us combination of the contact time and the distance jumped in meters uh, and we're looking for anything 0.96 or higher and that will tell us what phase plyometrics we give an athlete it can also tell us as far as mechanics go it can also tell us about an athlete should consider maybe trying different styles based off of strength like a lot of college and youth athletes who don't possess enough strength to actually land with a flat landing we would ideally love for guys to land flat obviously um landing flat will create a, a quicker decel but if you cannot accept those forces by landing flat maybe you should not be landing flat okay and we will suggest to guys to try a toe or a heel first landing if they score low on their deceleration profile and once again we're trying this. We're not saying this is what you have to do. We're just saying we're going to try it. And a lot of guys have great success with this. We'll look at a video of a guy who's throwing and landing flat and he's not quite where he wants to be. And we'll test him on this lead leg RSI and we'll see that, wow, this guy doesn't even have the stability to accept this force and decelerate his body and go the other way with it to be landing feet flat footed. So we will suggest a change. And by the same token, we might see a guy landing heel first and once again, guys, if these guys are where they want to be, keep them there. But if they're not, if we see a guy landing heel first and he's got great decel on the front leg, we might tell him he may be jipping himself by not trying a flat foot landing. So these are things that we want to think about when we're coaching mechanics in the weight room based off of what we see on the force plate. 
in the weight room, we can train this with single leg stability, a lot of SLDLs, split squats, rear foot elevated, all of these things with low, slow eccentrics to help them build up eccentric strength is key. And finally, we get the body composition. Athletes with high levels of lean body mass generally have more potential to transfer higher amounts of momentum to throw gas. Um, as once I said, it's potential. Major League Baseball pitchers, on average, are between 2.7 and three times their height in inches, and they're generally at about 12 to 15 percent body fat. Um, there are, however, outliers, once again, who can get by with either low or excessive body weight. A lot of these guys with low body weight, we generally see things get a little iffy down the road with them, and their durability to, to produce high-level throws year after year starts to dwindle. Um, once again, putting that lean muscle mass on and getting their weight up will help them become much more durable on the mound. And a lot of these guys that have that 2.7 to 3.0, that's fine, but they might be at 25, 30% body fat. And there's a lot of great pitchers. I'm not going to mention any names, but there's a lot of great pitchers that are overweight. And honestly, you're not going to move those guys. You're not going to touch those guys. They're successful. But once again, if we got guys that aren't where they want to be, taking some body fat off these guys can produce a better mover, a more agile mover, getting into better positions, getting into safer positions, and throwing the ball harder with less torque on the elbow and shoulder. So see, these are some of the things that we, uh, we use in our profiling pitchers. Our profile, once we're done with checking these parameters and these training adaptations, uh, we'll look at a bar graph that gives us all the things we just went through. Anything under that 80th percentile, we will count as lowest hanging fruit. There are once in a while some guys who have mostly everything above the 80th percentile, and we're going to just raise those guys' bar up evenly. But for the guys who are under, which is, you know, 90% of most people, we're going to look for those lowest hanging fruit. A lot of times, losses in strength, once I see a loss in strength, I can look down and I can probably tell that their lower and upper half power is also going to be affected, as will their deceleration. So by just getting their strength up, I can raise the bar on those other three metrics as well. So it doesn't have to be a long, monotonous task of thinking that you have to fix 10 different things because a lot of times when you fix a major player like strength, a lot of other things clean up, just like body composition. A lot of times guy needs to gain weight. He needs to gain weight, his strength goes up. His strength goes up, his power goes up. His ability to decelerate goes up because he's stronger. Everything goes up and a lot of times it's body composition. With our younger guys, this body composition is a huge one. Most of our young athletes that come in are underweight. We're not looking for that same major league baseball 2.7 to 3. I believe we're looking for about 2.1 to 2.3 um, on 13 to 16-year-old kids. Likewise, you get these guys strong, you get these guys with put some muscle on them, get them on some good nutrition, get their weight up, you'll see massive gains without even stepping on a mound. All in all, we've been using this with great success. If any of you are interested, um, you know, feel free to drop me a line at 
Nunzio at rocklandpeakperformance.com. I'd be happy to answer questions. Uh, you can reach me at Nunzio Signore on Twitter. You can reach my facility at RPP underscore baseball on Twitter and Instagram. And the website is rocklandpeakperformance.com. I've got a book out on velocity-based training, how to apply science, technology, and data to maximize performance um, that's released by Human Kinetics. You can also get it on Amazon. And uh, until then, hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast on the pitcher's profile. And um, until then, stay tuned for another episode of Behind the Seams Podcast. Have a great weekend.